With all the issues being discussed in government today, it's easy to get distracted by the politics of everything. But behind the scenes, VMware's cybersecurity software is working overtime to ensure our virtual environments are safe and secure. DH Technologies and VMware are here to offer you a free demo of their virtualization software. Go to dhtech.com demo to find out how to protect your organization today. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from On the Media, The Bradcast, The Majority Report, Trumpcast, Start Making Sense, Democracy Now!, Jim Hightower, and Primary Concerns. Secrecy, evasion, and stonewalling define the news in Congress this week. I do not have any recollection. I do not remember. I did not remember that. If I had remembered it or or if it actually occurred, which I don't remember that it did. Tuesday, the Senate Rules Committee issued a statement saying it would bar reporters from filming interviews in Senate hallways, citing safety reasons. Senate Republicans have a secret health care bill. They plan to vote on this month, but they are literally refusing to show anyone or any Democrats or the public what is in it. As Senate Republicans furtively crafted their replacement for Obamacare, the story remained absent from the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and the Wall Street Journal for most of the week. No doubt the secrecy was part of the reason why. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon joins us to discuss the Iron Curtain shrouding the health care bill. Senator Wyden, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again, Brooke. So we know McConnell hopes to pass the new health care bill by July 4th without public hearings or the opportunity to propose amendments. Explain why the GOP doesn't plan to publicly release an early draft of the health bill. What I think they understand is that this bill, if it sees the light of day, is going to generate enormous opposition with the American people. Okay, for 25 points, who said this? Fast-tracking a major legislative overhaul such as health care reform without the benefit of a full and transparent debate does a disservice to the American people, to which he added, and it would make it absolutely clear that they intend to carry out their plan on a purely partisan basis. Sounds like the kind of thing I might have said. (laughs) It's Mitch McConnell in 2009 when the Democrats wanted to fast-track Obamacare. So does everybody do it? How is the situation different? First thing, everybody doesn't do it. And as you know, I sit on the Finance Committee. We had more than 50 hearings, roundtables, and walkthroughs on health care reform. We're talking about Obamacare now? Correct. We spent eight days processing the legislation. In the open, more than two dozen Republican amendments were agreed to, and the Finance Committee posted legislation online for six days before we began going forward. And then the Senate spent 25 consecutive days in session on health reform. So I think you can tell there's quite a contrast between (laughs) what was done in 2009 and what's being done now. Okay, so on Tuesday, the Senate Rules Committee suddenly told reporters to stop interviewing senators in the hallways of the Capitol. And then a few hours later, outrage ensued. The restrictions were lifted. 
Do you think that this was a rather blunt force move to stifle coverage of the bill? That's for sure. Republicans didn't want to answer questions about a horrendous health care bill. And the thought for them was, hey, we can accomplish our objectives by just shutting down reporters, banning TV cameras from the Capitol who might hold elected officials accountable. But what about the safety issues, Senator? Some speculated that the decision was made to address the ever-increasing number of reporters crowding senators in the hallways. Our halls can get crowded, but we've set up all kinds of approaches over the years, ropes in some places to keep reporters from blocking walkways. But this notion that there is some safety calamity here, and because of this horribly dangerous situation, we ought to chuck the First Amendment aside, I don't think it makes sense. What does it say about American democracy at the moment that elected officials can craft such a consequential law behind closed doors and that it's tolerated? First of all, it's not going to be tolerated. We're speaking out every single day in every single forum. For the next two weeks, it is all in, all the time, on health care. For example, in the Finance Committee yesterday, health care came up and mention was made on the Republican side that somehow this was being treated as a partisan divide. And I spoke up within a minute or two and said, whoa, it's a partisan divide? If you're going to insist on actually being able to read a bill, that's what we're talking about here. The Senate Finance Committee is the committee with jurisdiction over Medicare, Medicaid, taxes, and we have not seen this bill. That's just not right. We have to stabilize the private health insurance market. Both sides ought to come together to take steps to hold down the cost of prescription medicine. We have ideas on that. I'm sure Republicans have. But that's the right way to proceed in the open. As far as the Finance Committee, which is the go-to committee for billions and billions and billions of dollars of health care payments. The secrecy surrounding this bill is without precedent. I have never seen anything like this. Okay, next up on the secrecy docket. During Attorney General Jeff Sessions' Senate hearing this week, Democracy Now! noted that he said, I don't remember or I don't recall, 26 times. You accused him of stonewalling the Russia investigation when he ducked questions about his conversations with the president and the Russian ambassador. Sessions claimed he was merely following the historic policies of the Department of Justice. Is that a fair interpretation of executive privilege? No, and, and no one really knows what these historic uh, practices are. And it's the president's authority to claim executive privilege. What the Trump administration is trying to do is have the best of both worlds, and it doesn't add up. On one hand, the president doesn't want to take the heat for claiming executive privilege. So he sends his subordinates up to Capitol Hill to offer all kinds of arguments as to why they shouldn't answer questions. They say things like it wouldn't be appropriate to answer. Mm -hmm. And so we asked, well, where in the law does it talk about that being a legal basis for not answering a question? So if there's something you'd like to try, 
This is breaking just before airtime on uh, on Mondays. The uh, Congressional Budget Office has now found they have scored the Republican bill, the Republican health care bill that came out just last Thursday. And uh, it will result in 22 million more Americans being uninsured in 2026 than they would if uh, President Barack Obama's health care law, the Affordable Care Act, stayed in place. So 22 million Americans will lose their insurance under the Senate Republican scheme, according to the congressional, the, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office on Monday uh, in what is seen as a blow to Republican leaders uh, and their hopes of pushing this plan through the chamber this week. They are hurrying to get it out before the 4th of July. But I guess, once again, in redefining good news, hey, this is good news. It only takes away health care from 22 million people, whereas the House version takes health care away from 23 million people. See? Good news for a million well, people, right? Well, there you go. That's uh, about all there is in there. That's about it. Yeah, it would yeah. also save, uh, well, this is uh, for, for budget hawks, it would also save $321 billion over the next decade. Save the government that much money. Uh, that's got to be good news to people who care about such things, uh, much more than they care about the health of citizens of these United States. Of course, that happens by spending $1 trillion less on health care than what would currently be spent and using those savings to repeal the Affordable Care Act's taxes to uh, wealthy individuals, a handful of wealthy individuals uh, and a bunch of medical companies as well. So uh, there's good news for rich people. You're going to get a whole bunch of money back, billions of dollars back in, in taxes. Who cares if those poor people suffer and die in the meantime? The CBO coverage estimates pose yet another problem for Senator Mitch McConnell, according to AP. Uh, he um, had hoped by, um, to, well, to, to have that vote before uh, the July 4 recess at the end of this week. But even by Friday afternoon, the day after he revealed the legislation, he was already facing public statements of opposition of varying levels from at least five GOP senators. He can only afford to lose two of them before this bill won't pass with a bare majority in the U.S. Senate. The 22 million additional people without coverage under, under the Senate proposal is just a hair better than the 23 million people who'd be left without insurance under the measure that the House approved last month, according to AP. Donald Trump has called that version mean and called on Senate Republicans to approve legislation with more heart. Well, this has got more heart. This has got one million people more heart. Uh, of course, it has. Uh, it is worse for Americans in the immediate future because the House bill, the CBO had found, would lose uh, coverage for 14 million people next year alone. The Senate bill would result in 15 million of them with no insurance next year. 
So he's facing uh, a lot of opposition, uh, not just from members of his own caucus, of course, but from outside groups. We went through a list uh, last week of, of uh, you know, the hospital groups and uh, medical groups who had come out against, in, in no uncertain terms, against this bill. Uh, and that is no doubt why the uh, number two Senate Republican John Cornyn of Texas, uh, who had previously said that, uh, well, maybe we'll come uh, we'll vote on this bill later in July after the recess. He tweeted out today, quote, I am closing the door. We need to do this this week. Before double digit premium increases are announced for next year. Oh, like they care. That's why he's doing it. Yeah, not right. because to avoid the increases, not to avoid uh, the growing opposition and people like you calling in to your senator at 202 224 3121 and giving them your opinion on how they should vote. Donald Trump uh, struck what the New York Times called a tone of resignation Monday on Twitter, noting that Republican senators were working hard to pass their repeal bill, but added, it's not easy. Perhaps just let Obamacare crash and burn, said the president of the United States. Well, that's not mean at all, is it, to the some 20 million Americans who have uh, gained coverage thanks to the Affordable Care Act. So uh, now we're looking at Republican Senators Dean Heller of Nevada, Susan Collins of Maine, several other moderate GOP senators who are uh, have expressed concerns about this measure uh, and the, the fact that it would increase the number of uninsured people substantially, according to the CBO today. The increase would be disproportionately larger among older people with lower income. Those between uh, the ages of 50 and 64 in particular with incomes below 200 percent of the poverty level, they would at least until this bill have been covered by Medicaid uh, until they're 65 when Medicare kicks in. But uh, this Senate bill really guts Medicaid on a whole bunch of different levels, as we have been uh, discussing and as we will be once again discussing uh, in the days ahead. And and remember, it delays it until 2021, until after the next presidential election. And then that's when the bomb will go off for all these people who may not be aware before they vote for the next president. At the same time, a bunch of Nobel winning economists have now come out against the Senate health care bill. Uh, this includes uh, this a group of about uh, 30, I think, uh, 30 economists uh, came out against the bill today, including six Nobel Prize winners expressing opposition to the Senate Republicans legislation, arguing that a quote threatens reduced coverage and higher costs for those who continue to have it. So uh, hospitals are against it. Uh, economists are against it. And today as well, the American Medical Association came out against the bill. In a letter to Senate leaders, they outlined their opposition to the so-called Better Care Reconciliation Act. Throughout the health care, throughout, uh, throughout the health system reform debate, the AMA has urged that reforms not result in individuals with health insurance losing access to affordable quality coverage. That Medicaid and other safety nets uh, not uh, continue to be adequately funded and that key market reforms such as pre-existing conditions be maintained. The Senate draft, however, they find violates many of those principles. In their letter to uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, the AMA said on behalf of the physician and medical student members of the American Medical Association, 
We are writing to express our opposition to the discussion draft of the Better Care Reconciliation Act released on June 22nd. The letter begins, Medicine has long operated under the precept of first do no harm. This legislation violates that standard on many levels, they go on to say. So uh, does anybody like this bill? Does anybody other than the, uh, the the Republicans in the Senate who are desperately working to pass this thing, does anybody like this bill? And I guess maybe the rich people who have their health insurance and, hey, they're going to get anywhere from $50,000 on up to millions of dollars in uh, in tax breaks. And while the, the cuts to health care, those don't kick in for a couple of years, uh, the... The tax cuts, those will be retroactive going back to 2016 under the Senate bill, if it ever gets passed. Because this is actually a tax cut bill dressed up as health care. When you're running your own business, attention to detail is critical because there is a lot you don't want to slip through the cracks. But most of us aren't experts, and so we need some outside help. Fortunately, there's LegalZoom. Even this little podcast of mine is a business with legal requirements, so I did what over a million Americans have done and turned to LegalZoom for help to file all of my necessary paperwork, pay my fees, and help me keep up on all of my ongoing legal obligations that I wouldn't even know how to keep track of otherwise. They'll help you start your business and go far beyond. So don't waste your valuable time trying to wrap your head around all of the fine print and complicated laws. Use LegalZoom for that so you can focus on growing your business instead. You'll get the legal help you need without being billed by the hour since LegalZoom isn't a law firm. So go to LegalZoom.com today and be sure to enter the code LEFT in the referral box for special savings. That's LegalZoom.com referral code LEFT. This is about cutting taxes. This is not a health care bill. This is a tax cut bill. And the only way they can pass this tax cut bill is through reconciliation, which involves 50 votes, 51 votes. And the only way they can use reconciliation is if this is deficit neutral. So to cut taxes, they have to cut services. And it just so happens there's this big service out there called the Affordable Care Act, Patient Protection Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And that's what they're going to cut because that's what their constituents want. I always bring this up. Uh, Several weeks ago, we played this clip when I was hosting of uh, uh, Paul Ryan's uh, tax advisor. And it was one of these clips that a certain kind of like centristy pundit loves to grab because they're like, oh, see, there's still sane Republicans. Because the story at that time was that this was before the House passed uh, health care when they had failed. And the report from the White House was Trump just wanted to drop it and do a tax cut because it would be more popular and easy to pass. And Ryan's guy at a forum in D.C. was like, that's unicorn thinking. We can't have tax cuts without dealing with health care. And people jumped on it like, 
oh, that's so great of him to have a reasonable right. And it was like, no, he's actually showing you the sociopathic intentions of these people, which is that, no, step by step. First, we decimate the social safety net, throw millions off of health insurance and into poverty, and then we give money to rich people. Well, it wasn't a moment, and he's right, but it wasn't like a moment of rational enlightenment. No, it wasn't. He was showing you their strategy no, and yeah, how it, it works. It was a practical prescription. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't cut taxes without cutting the services because we don't have enough votes to do it right. the way that you're talking about. It must be really bad, too, for Bernie to share a platform with a woman. That's hard. Because yeah, he's such a, like, all right, I'll, Listen, I'll sit with Elizabeth and pretend I can't Here is, opinion. I keep saying... This is not a health care bill. This is a tax cut bill. And here is why. These reporters from Vox went and asked Republicans in the Senate. What are you trying to do with this bill? Right? It's ostensibly a health care bill. They cannot cut taxes. Without the votes, they need to do it through reconciliation. You can't do it through reconciliation in the Senate unless it's deficit neutral. So you must cut something. And for them, Medicaid, essentially, and other provisions of uh, the Affordable Care Act are the easiest things to cut. Why do we attack Iraq? Because that's what everybody agreed upon. It was the easiest thing we could have done, as Thomas Friedman said. And the idea is not to fix. Healthcare. Exhibit A. Tara Golshin from Vox interviewing John McCain. Vox. Generally, what are the big problems this bill is trying to solve? John McCain. Almost all of them. They're trying to get to 51 votes. Vox. Tara Golshin. Policy wise, what are the problems in the American healthcare system this is trying to solve? And is that bill doing this right now? John McCain. Well, it's whether you have full repeal, whether you have partial repeal, whether you have the basis of it. It's spread all over. Tara Gulshin. No, but based on the specifics of the bill you've heard so far, is it solving the problems in the healthcare system? John McCain. What I hear is we have not reached consensus. That's what everybody knows. Tara Gulshin. Right. But outside of getting the votes from what you hear of the actual legislation being written, is it solving the problems you see? It's not being written because there's no consensus. But generally speaking, what are the big problems it's trying to solve? You name it. (laughs) Everything from the repeal caucus, which, as you know, have made their views very clear, Rand Paul, etc. And then there are the others on the other side of the spectrum that just want to make minor changes to the present system. There's not consensus minor changes to the present system in other words that is the most disingenuous thing he said in the whole exchange in well there are some people who are basically in favor of like let's just call it trump care well collins and murkowski maybe but that's not something that's really on the table no it's not well that's what i meant by disingenuous that's not happening he he's but the point of this is he can't even answer what the problem is with the existing thing and what this legislation is aiming to fix Because it's a tax cut. Jeff Stein from Vox talks to Chuck Crassley. (laughs) I want to ask you a very broad question. What do you think this health care will accomplish that will improve America? What's the positive case for this bill? Grassley. Well, I can tell you what it's going to do for Iowa. 
we are one of those states that in a couple of weeks, if the insurer Medica pulls out, we'll have 94 of our 95 counties won't have any insurance, even for people who have the subsidies. That's what we have to concentrate on now. So at least Grassley now is stating like, hey, there's a problem. Here's the problem. So Jeff Stein says, how do you think that bill will fix that problem? Grassley, well, by bringing certainty to the insurance market. They don't have certainty now. Stein, by bringing certainty to the insurance market, what certainty? Grassley, what? <laughs> what do you mean by certainty? Well, they can't even file. They have to check the real ra- the rates real high if they don't know what the government policy is. And so the certainty is that passing a bill gives the health insurance company certainty. Jeff Stein, but wouldn't not passing a bill also do that? <laughs> no, it, well, yeah, it gives them certainty that you'll have a lot higher rates than if you pass the bill. So you're saying the bill will lower rates. Um, if you're talking about lowering the rates from now down, no, <laughs> the rates could go way, be way up here. And if they, if we get a bill passed, it maybe wouldn't go up or would go up a heck of a lot less than they would without a bill by rates. You're talking about premiums. Yeah. yeah. Premiums. Yeah. I'm sorry. I have to go. <laughs> I can see why they want to ban reporters from the halls. The reason why rates are going through the roof now is because the president keeps threatening to cut off subsidies, to, which is not to say there aren't affordability problems with the Affordable Care Act. Without a doubt, massive ones, that public options would certainly help mitigate to some extent. But the idea that the Affordable Care Act... Um, that this is going to be improvement on the Affordable Care Act. Nobody's even making that case. as you know, was sort of awful to a lot of people in the individual market, right? right. Uh, it kind of stripped a lot of the consumer protections or potentially stripped a lot of the consumer protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And it wasn't so great to Medicaid either. You know, it rolled back Obamacare's Medicaid expansion. But what made that bill so controversial was really what it did to the individual market. It was it was crueler to the individual market. Let's right. Put it that way. What I, whatever call whatever call is that that bill essentially completely deregulated the individual market such or, that or it gave state it gave states the opportunity to completely right. deregulate it and you know slash subsidies for people to buy insurance and and restructured them in ways that didn't make sense and would have deeply penalized the old the old and sick especially. Um, so that was that was sort of the most in a lot of ways the most remarkable thing about that bill. At the Senate bill, and I don't want to underplay how, how awfully the, the House bill treated Medicaid, but what the Senate has gone and done is created a bill that is a little bit gentler to the individual market, right? But just decimates Medicaid over the long term, just absolutely decimates Medicaid. 
And what you have to understand is that Medicaid is America's biggest health insurance program. It is, at least by enrollment, it is 52 million people. You know, it is the size of the, of Medicare and the individual market combined, right? I mean, Medicaid is this immense part of the American healthcare system and the, and the Senate bill just throttles it. It's, it's really remarkable. And so how does, how do they do that? Well, both the House and Senate want to do something historic by capping Medicaid's per patient spending, right? This so, has never been done before. Yeah. To, to start to, to back up a little bit, how is Medicaid presently funded? My understanding is it's a, it's a joint kind of state-federal program. Yeah. And so the way it works now is that states and the federal government basically split the cost of every Medicaid patient. And the federal government kicks in a different amount of money or a different percentage of the cost depending on the state. But it's always a fixed percentage. So, you know, if, you know, just to, I'm kind of pulling out a number of thin air, but if, say, the states that if the federal government says we're going to pay 60% of every South Carolinian's uh, Medicaid expenses, then it's 60% whether or not it costs $7,000 or $3,000 to cover them for the year, right? So uh, that's, that's the basics of how it works. And so there's sort of this unlimited budget for, for the program. It's an open-ended entitlement, as people like to say. Um, Republicans want to end that. What they want to do instead is cap the amount of money that uh, the government would kick in each year to the state. So you each state only gets its $4,000 per patient or $5,000 per patient, or probably less than that. But so you set this pool of money, you give these, you, you put this per capita cap in place. But the problem is you have to adjust that for inflation, at least, right? Or inflation is going to eat the program away to nothing. And so the House bill it used this measure called the CPIM or the medical consumption or the medical cost element of the, of the consumer price index. And that, that is expected to grow slower than Medicaid would otherwise. And so it still amounts to a budget cut, but it's still somewhat related to, you know, medical costs over the long term. Right. The Senate kind of takes this idea and then makes it more draconian. Um, and so basically they do the same thing as the House for several years, uh, up until 2025. But then in 2025, they switched the inflation measure. So instead of um, growing the program based on medical inflation, they just use the regular old consumer price index. And the consumer price index, that's the thing that also tracks the cost of food, the cost of television, the cost of your carpet, uh, of the books on your bookshelf. You know, I mean, it's all this stuff completely unrelated to, to medical care, and it grows much, much more slowly than the cost of medical care. And so eventually, over time, the value of Medicaid funding is just going, Medicaid, you know, Medicaid funding is not going to keep up with the cost of providing for sick people, of getting, of paying for people's hospital stays and for their checkups and for their medications. And so states are going to have to, are going to have to make the program less and less generous. And, you know, this all sounds extremely technical, but the difference between what the Senate is doing and what the House proposed we're talking over the long term, hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, we're talking immense change. It's, it's the kind of, this would be absolutely devastating to Medicaid. And so the question is, you may be wondering is why are they, okay, they're, they're devastating Medicaid. Why are they doing that? It's like, well, it's because they're trying to, it looks like they're trying to spend a little bit more to make the reforms to the individual market a little less abhorrent, I guess, or a little, a little bit more politically palatable. Essentially, Republicans have decided that they're going to or the Senate Republicans have decided they're going to try and keep uh, Obamacare's tax credit structure in place, um, the subsidies for individuals that people can use to buy individual health insurance. They're going to keep the same basic, keep the same basic structure of that in place, 
but they're just going to make them a little bit less generous. <laughs> they're going to they're going to make fewer people eligible for them, and they and the subsidies will cover essentially less care. They'll be worth less money, but they'll they'll still you know be higher for the poor, and they'll still be targeted towards low income people. Um, and they won't they won't kind of leave people hanging out to dry quite the same way the House bill did. Right. I mean, what you've described sounds less like an Obamacare repeal bill, which is how this has been framed and sold, and more like a Medicaid repeal bill. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's reminiscent of, of you know, welfare reform. I know right. It's a subject you've written a bunch about, I've written about, um, you know, what one of the, the most important things that the Republicans and, you know, Bill Clinton did to welfare back in the 1990s was they they block granted the program and essentially the per capita cap um, that Republicans are now contemplating for Medicaid is a version of a block grant. It's it's uh, less restrictive, but it's still kind of it's a cousin of that idea. Um, and you know that just means that you send a set amount of money to the states each year. And then what they did with welfare was they just didn't adjust it for inflation. They let inflation eat away the value of the program. That's not quite what they're doing here. They're still going to adjust it for inflation, but they're not going to allow the program's funding to keep pace with the cost of actually providing care to people. And so its value is in real is, is essentially going to be eroded over time. It's going to pay for less and less care. And I, I assume that because the value is eroding over time, what's probably likely to happen on the state level, states begin restricting enrollment to make up for the, for the declining, um, declining funds. Well, it, it's actually even even more complicated than that. that oh, well, that's good. That's part, good. <laughs> yeah, right? It's actually more complicated and sadder than that, um, if you can imagine. There's sort of, there are a few things the states could do, right? Because on the one hand, they still get money per enrollee. However, you only get so much for each person. So one thing that incentivizes you to do is to just, you know, cut what Medicaid will cover. You're sort of incentivized to just like make the program stingier, just say, oh, we're not going to cover prescription drugs or, you know, we're going to, you know, there are all sorts of optional services like dental care that Medicaid doesn't have to cover. And those are probably going to go in a lot of states. Um, so it's, you know, we're going to pay doctors less. Um, and as a result, fewer doctors will probably accept the program. That's one thing you can do. Another thing is to try and find ways just to weed out really expensive patients. And like, again, it's not exactly clear how states can do this, but as you and I both know, They've proven exceptionally good at keeping people away from welfare. So I imagine they will find creative ways to keep very sick people away from Medicaid. Um, so it's to kind of make sure that you just enroll the cheapest Medicaid patients, which essentially, you know, boils down to the healthiest ones and you leave the sick out in the kind of cold. In the end, you're still, you're still seeing the total amount of funding go down. And so, you know, one easy way to do that is just enroll, like if the states are going to have to shoulder more of the burden, uh, for this program, they are going to be tempted to just enroll fewer people so that they are on the hook for less money. To, to back up real quick, part of the political obstacles to passing this are some Republican senators say that they are worried about what the House bill did to Medicaid. And this is sort of taking the House bill's approach to Medicaid and going even further. And it's kind of worth saying as a parenthetical that it's 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 funny, right, that the House was blasted for what it did for the individual market, which is relatively small in the scheme of things. And to the Senate, almost, a, almost to avoid that reaction, has crafted something that will demolish a much larger chunk of the American healthcare system um, that involves many more people and really kind of a cross-section of America. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, you know, the only reason this makes political sense um, is that people on the individual market 
seem to be a little bit more politically active, seem to or seem to be better represented in the media, <laughs> seem to, you know, they, they seem to have a little bit more voice in politics and maybe are a little bit higher income, although that's that's a bit of a question. So I can sort of see the political calculation. The idea is just that Medicaid patients are, don't vote, you know, right. don't, you know, they don't donate. Um, they don't, you know, they don't have, you're talking, you know, in Southern states, they tend to, to be entirely honest, they tend to be disenfranchised minority populations and in, 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 in to a large extent, um, or disproportionately. I think that's where some of the political calculation comes here. It's safer to attack Medicaid. At least they think it is. You're a disaster. Does anything matter to you? You're a disaster. And it makes all the laughter look sad. So pull up your socks or crash into the rocks. You're headed for what are you after? If not disaster. Every week we say the Democrats can't just complain that Trump is terrible. They also have to come up with good alternatives. Of course, during the primaries, Bernie Sanders argued that Democrats have to guarantee health care to all as a right through a Medicare for all single payer program. Bernie reiterated that last week in a New York Times op-ed. And I saw that uh, Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson wrote this week that sooner or later we will have universal single payer health care in this country sooner if Republicans succeed in destroying Obamacare later if they fail. I wonder if you agree and I wonder where we stand right now on single payer. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, look, first of all, it's always been true that single payer has been very popular with voters, more so than you would would realize watching sort of the the beltway conversation, even among Republican voters. I think Democrats are learning a couple lessons here. Number one is, is, as we mentioned, you know, this idea of inviting Republicans to mold a significant portion of, of a health care bill is basically going to backfire on you. They're, they're going to change it, then they're going to vote against it, and they're going to bash you over the head with it for seven years and then scrap the whole thing. So on a, on a process level, I think they're learning that. But what I think Democrats are also learning is looking at the, the very real problems with Obamacare and the things that created a lot of legitimate backlash when companies started pulling out of the exchanges and leaving not enough options or when uh, the, the premiums were going up too high or or whatever, you know, a lot of that was coming in the section of the Affordable Care Act that was basically based on conservative principles that was based on the Mitt Romney plan in Massachusetts. The, the Medicaid expansion has been very popular, has straightforwardly helped a lot of people. It's what is if if GOP moderates do end up killing the Senate bill, it will be because of Medicaid concerns. Um, so I think Democrats are looking at this and going, OK, well, what was essentially an expansion of, of single payer health care and the Medicaid expansion is popular. This sort of like Rube Goldberg system of healthcare exchanges and a highly regulated marketplace that we we basically did as an ideological South Republicans is failing or is giving us at least a lot of trouble. You know, I, I think that's a lesson they can apply going forward, even if it's not, you know, 100 percent full single payer next time the Democrats pass something. Is it something where there's a robust, robust public option or 
you know, the, the Medicaid age is lowered and the, or, sorry, the Medicare age is lowered and the Medicaid threshold is raised, just sort of gradually getting us to a single payer system. I think and hope that that is a lesson they are learning right now. I've been traveling down this river. So many rocks pop up in my sight. I got to make some quick decisions. Should I go left or should I go right? I pray for guidance and protection. It keeps my boat watertight. And I know if I just keep on believing, every little thing's all gonna be alright. This is uh, just from Reuters. Let me quote this briefly. A seven-year push by U.S. Rep- or U.S. Republicans to dismantle Obamacare and kill the taxes it imposed on the wealthy will reach a critical juncture on Thursday when Senate Republican leaders unveil a draft. Um, they've worked on a secret bill that it will uh, curb the Medicare Medicaid expansion uh, and reduce taxes on the wealthy. Um, and this in Talking Points memo, it also signals an approach that largely sticks to the House Republicans' legislation, which the CBO, which the CBO said would result in 23 million people uh, losing their health coverage with that um, – the ACA's Medicaid expansion will still be wound down as in the House bill, but in a more gradual process, but with deeper cuts. Um, you know, <laughs> this is exactly what we said it was going to be. And I know we have a link up on our website um, where you can call your senators about this. Uh, and there's still a possibility, as I say, with someone like Murkowski and Collins, they've promised to protect Medicaid. Portman's promised to protect Medicaid. Murkowski's promised to protect Planned Parenthood. And Brad then, course, Paul has said that he's not happy that this doesn't look like, look like a repeal enough of Obamacare. Well, that's – and again, that's as, and this is the dynamic that happened in 2011, which was that Obama offered uh, – really, really significant and savage cuts in social services in Medicare and, and Social Security and Republicans uh, rejected the deal because Obama basically wanted like a pitling tax increase in return. So maybe, maybe, very slightly maybe, we will be saved by Republican insanity again. But it does not look good. And again, they need to do this. This is the way they get the tax cuts through, which is their entire purpose for being. We need to let go of the notion of Republican moderates from the lexicon. They don't exist. Anybody, you know, someone tweeted today that when John McCain dies, it will be a great hack test to see how honest people are about his legacy. Because while he's been wandering around and yakking about transparency, he's going to vote for this bill. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that it was done in secret. He doesn't care that Republican lobbyists saw this before Democrats. He doesn't care that it's going to lose tens of million people their coverage. He doesn't care. And he's the one who plays the game of being above the fray and has been indulged endlessly by the media. 
And also on a much more structural and macro sense, I mean, if this bill is wound down, first and foremost and most importantly, it's going to harm and cause premature deaths for a lot of people. And that is a sin and deaths that are on the hands of the Republican Party. And it's, you know, obviously an utter moral obscenity and a danger to the health of the country and a danger to most Americans' well-being. This is not even to mention it doesn't protect you with a pre-existing condition. This does not even to mention the reduction um, of health care coverage for, from your employer in terms of quality. Um, and it's a rebuke of media. It's a rebuke of fantasy about Republican moderation. But it's also – this Obamacare is the pinnacle of third-way governance – and it, and, and, and a good reminder again to the Tim Blacks of the world that yes, third way governance is significantly better than Republican governance. If you know anything about politics and you have any real life experience, a bill that protects people pre existing conditions and expands Medicaid and keeps kids on their parents' health care plan until they're 26 and ensures minimal care standards and insurance plan is way better than the, than the Republican alternative, which is what they're about to do, which is gut it all. But what, you know, establishment Democrats need to get is that this plan, which was so clever and supposed to satisfy everybody and this great moderate piece of consensus legislating, which was passed through reconciliation, not supported by a vast majority of Republicans, is going to get wound down just to subsidize a Republican tax cut. There is no reciprocal moderation on the other side. All you have is top-down class warfare. So people who think that Bernie isn't realistic in Medicare for all might need to start realizing that Obamacare wasn't realistic because they are not going to allow any of this type of thing to stand. It's just going to be pure political conflict. And you might as well actually go for deep structural solutions and also proposals that at least you can sell simply and concisely to most of the population. Because that's another thing is that complexity does not sell well. And only now at the point when Republicans are gutting it and costing people their lives and their well-beings that people really understand what Obamacare was doing, which is a failure of messaging and also a testament to the incredible, amazing extraordinary dishonesty and amorality of the Republican Party. So call your senators. In a 60 Minutes interview in 2015, Donald Trump appeared to come out in favor of a form of single-payer health insurance for the uninsured. I wanted to play this clip. 
Obamacare is going to be repealed and replaced. Obamacare is a disaster. If you look at what's going on with premiums, whether up 45, 50, 55 percent. So how do you fix it? There's many different ways, by the way. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say, because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25 percent, they can't afford private. But universal health care. I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taken care of now. The uninsured person right. is going to be taken care of. They're going to be how? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? This is probably... Make a deal. Who pays for it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. But for the most part, it's going to be a private plan, and people are going to be able to go out and negotiate great plans with lots of different competition, with lots of competitors, with great companies, and they can have their doctors, they can have their plans, they can have everything. That was Donald Trump in 2015. Dr. Uh, Steffi Wolhandler, can you respond? You're one of the key advocates for Medicare for All. Where does that fit into this picture today? Um, are, do you think this is a moment uh, where th the time for Medicare for All can be pushed around the country in a very big way, as people across the political spectrum are horrified by the specter of, among other things, tens of millions of people losing their health insurance. Yeah, well, the ACA made some modest improvements to the health care system, and the Republicans would pull those all back. But the Affordable Care Act was never a very good bill. Uh, it left 28 million Americans completely uninsured, and tens of millions more with these unaffordable gaps in their coverage, like co-payments and deductibles and uncovered services. And that's why the Affordable Care Act has been vulnerable to these Republican attacks, because people look at their own situation and say, even under Obamacare, under the Affordable Care Act, health care is still not affordable to me. So the best way to fight the Republican attacks is to say, let's move forward from the Affordable Care Act to a single-payer system rather than backward through repeal. The single-payer system works because by having a single, simple Medicare for All system, you save so much money on administrative costs and overhead that you can cover all of the unemployment insured and improve coverage for everybody else who has gaps in their coverage without raising total health care costs. And that's why about 20,000 U.S. physicians have come together into Physicians for a National Health Program to advocate single-payer. <clears throat> That's why the National Nurses United, the biggest nursing union in the country, is pushing single-payer. It's why Senator Sanders ran, ran on single-payer, and it's why Congressman uh, John Conyers has introduced a bill into Congress with, two, with 112 co-sponsors for single-payer. So now is the time to be saying to the electorate, the ACA was a step forward, but not a big enough step. We need to be moving forward from the ACA to that single-payer Medicare for All plan that Americans need and deserve. And to keep on moving forward, keep on moving forward, keep on moving forward, never turning. Gonna keep on moving proudly. Keep on moving proudly. Keep on moving proudly. 
turning back, never turning back. Good news, people. At last, congressional Democrats have gotten a clue, grown some spine, and are beginning to act like, well, like Democrats. In particular, a majority of Dems in the U.S. House are responding to the rising public demand that decent health care be treated as a right for everyone, rather than being rationed by profiteering insurance conglomerates. Nearly six of ten in the House have now signed on to Representative John Conyers' Medicare for All bill, which is being carried in the Senate by Bernie Sanders. So, hallelujah, progress. Yes, but there are many speed bumps to overcome before the Democratic Party gets onto the moral high road of politics. Representative Nancy Pelosi, for one. When the leader of House Democrats was asked if the party should make health care for all a major issue in Congress and in the 2018 elections, she replied with a flat, no. Basically, Pelosi says, the American people aren't ready for it, by which she really means that the narrow slice of the public that inhabits her world, health industry executives, lobbyists, and campaign donors, aren't ready. Meanwhile, a good 60% of regular Americans are damn sure ready, telling pollsters that our government has a responsibility to ensure that everyone gets the care they need. Let's be blunt. When it comes to the fiery leadership that America's grassroots people want and need, the Democratic Party establishment is weaker than Canadian hot sauce. When you've got 60% of your party's rank-and-file congressional members ready to go, and 60% of the public is also ready to go, it's time to go. The National Party's leadership must get going on health care for all, or the leadership itself must go. This is Jim Hightower saying, to help push both the party and the health care for all issue forward, go to nationalnursesunited.org. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop Trump care, obviously. Now, just because it feels like everyone knows how utterly awful this dressed-up bill of tax cuts for the wealthy is doesn't mean it won't become law. The pure fact that it is a reconciliation bill was a strategic way to get this through the Senate with only 50 Republican votes. Thankfully, it looks like they're coming up a little short. After the Congressional Budget Office released their report revealing that the Senate bill is no less cruel than the House bill, a few Republican senators are showing reservations. Those reservations must be cemented in to no votes. And to do that, those senators need to hear from you. 
As of the air date of this show, Mitch McConnell has postponed the vote until after the July 4th recess. That means we have time on our side and a big point to make on America's birthday. The Center for American Progress Action Fund has created a website listing the 15 Republican senators who are most likely to vote against Trump Care, along with their phone numbers and the ability to tweet at them with a graphic showing the number of people in their state who will lose coverage if the Senate bill passes. Go to trumpcaretoolkit.org to check it out and take action. For more detailed information on what this bill will do and call scripts to help you get a message across your senators, head over to indivisibleguide.com. Their Stop Trump Care Toolkit has been updated to provide all the details and resources you need to fight against the Senate bill. These resources also include a layman terms explainer on why the bill still fails people with pre-existing conditions by allowing backdoor discrimination, and that is very important since the architects of this bill are working hard to specifically miss lead the public on that very point. If you call direct and the lines are busy, try using one of our favorite calling tools, Stance, at takeastance.us. The app allows you to record your message and delivers it directly to your congressperson's phone lines when call volume is low. And finally, if you can, show up at your congressperson's local office and go to town hall meetings. If your congressperson isn't hosting a town hall meeting, then consider hosting a citizen-led town hall and invite your congressperson. This tactic has been proven to be effective mostly because being represented by an empty chair is never good optics for a congressperson dodging their constituents. Go to townhallproject.com or visit your congressperson's website to see if there is a town hall near you during the recess. I probably don't need to remind you, but I will, that Medicaid as we know it is on the line. Affordable coverage for those who actually need it is on the line. Lifetime coverage caps and limitless out-of-pocket expenses will return. Even quality employer-sponsored insurance coverage is at risk. So please take action right now. I am not exaggerating in the slightest when I say that millions of lives are at stake. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if you are fed up with the attacks on the most vulnerable among us to pay for tax cuts for the rich, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about stopping Trump care via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Just after we started recording, uh, on Monday afternoon, uh, CBO actually weighed in on uh, the Senate health care bill. Um, and the, these are mainly just top line numbers, and I'm going to throw them at you so uh, we can break some news, at least to you, on, on this recording, uh, that the Senate health care bill will cause 15 million people to lose their insurance within the first year, 22 million over 10 years. And the impact will be very disparate based on age, for instance, Premiums for a 64-year-old uh, at middle income will go up from uh, $6,800 a year under the ACA to $20,500 under the Senate uh, health care bill. Um, and obviously, this is a bill for which there hasn't been a single hearing, um, the text of which has been updated even just today. 
So, and it will continue to change as they try to, to pass it. So, um, that's unconscionable. Right. You know, when you get down to it, look, put, put all this partisan politics aside. What is this all about? This is about Americans. This is about people. This is about Republicans and Democrats and independents, all folks out here, most of whom are working hard and just trying to get a piece of that American dream. And I mean, if we're truly trying to do something to make people's lives better, how in the world can you justify a bill that has those kinds of consequences? I mean, you talk about putting politics over people. I mean, that's all they're doing. I, they have to have a win, I guess. I mean, it's, this is not good for anybody, Republicans or Democrats, but for some reason, you know, they've got to have a partisan political win, even if it's passing one of the worst bills that has been proposed in generations that is going to do so much harm to the American people. It's, it is unconscionable. Um. So as as we were as we were pointing out before, or as I was uh, hinting at before, there are actually a couple of plot twists in this uh, in this episode. Um, one, one is that you establish proof, proof of concept for the ACA as a Democrat in a conservative state. So we we have a pretty strong sense from what you were able to do uh, in your last couple of years in office that if every state in the country adopted your model, you, you would have a a very vibrant half private insurance based half public insurance based insurance expansion that would cover um 90 plus percent of the population more than more than 90 percent i think uh, approaching 95 percent um uh the other twist is that the person leading the legislative effort to wipe out those gains is majority leader mitch mcconnell um and i i know the the two of you have a history so uh i was wondering if you tell us a little bit about that and and about how you how you seen um, McConnell's conduct in in public life change uh, over the years and particularly over these last uh, few months as as Republicans have come to power? Well, uh, Mitch McConnell and I were in law school together. We go fa- that far back, and uh, you know when Mitch first uh, got into elective office, he was elected as a county judge executive, which is the head of our biggest county over in uh, Louisville. Mm-hmm. Jefferson County. And he was a fairly liberal Republican. He was pro-choice. Uh, he had support of many of the labor unions in that area. Uh, and, you know, I've just watched as time has gone on and as his party has continued to to evolve, uh, he's evolved too. And he has he has moved to a point to where uh, you know, it's it's totally almost. I, I'll take whatever position I need to take to have the power I want to have. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's now majority leader of the United States Senate. Um, but the positions he takes today uh, have no relationship to who he was uh, back when he first started in politics. And it's it's really deplorable. Uh, when you when you look at what his actions, particularly on this bill, will do to his own constituents, I mean, it is going to not only damage people's lives; he's going to cost people their lives. People will die 
because of legislation like this if it passes. Not only in Kentucky, but all across this country. Now, you know, you'll get Republicans, some of them say, oh, you're just over-dramatizing this. Let me tell you something. As a governor, you got your feet on the ground down here in the real world, not up there in ethereal Washington, D.C. And my phone rings off the hook. You know, a mother called me the other day whose son has hemophilia. And she's terrified that when they jerk their health care coverage, she's not going to be able to afford the medicines that keep her son alive. A father I ran into down on the street the other day has a daughter in drug rehab. And he is terrified because if he doesn't have the coverage, he can't afford it, and he knows she'll die. Because if you don't have have that coverage, you know, that's what's going to happen. I mean, those are the kinds of things that are going on out here. People in nursing homes are up in arms because they may end up getting thrown out. This is just, I mean, you know, some of these folks talk about how Christian they are. And look, I'm the son of a Baptist preacher. I grew up going to church every time the doors open. But... Part of that upbringing was, you know, leaving this place a little better off than the way you found it and living the golden rule as opposed to just quoting it during political campaigns. And man, oh man, how how can these folks, you know, call themselves Christian or godly or anything else like they do all the time and then take this kind of attitude and, and intentionally intentionally want to pass stuff that will destroy people's lives. It, it's, it's amazing to me that, that they can get up and look themselves in the mirror in the morning and not be so ashamed that, that they have to just go back to bed. Today we heard clips starting with On the Media speaking with Ron Wyden about the unprecedented secrecy of the Republican health care bill. The Bradcast announced the CBO scoring in more details about the bill. The Majority Report explained in detail why this isn't a health care bill after all, but actually a tax cut bill. Trumpcast talks specifically about the damage that will be done to Medicaid under Trumpcare. Start Making Sense laid out how to get from here to single-payer. The Majority Report explained why complicated centrist legislation like the ACA was always doomed to be destroyed, reaffirming why a push for Medicare for All is critical. Democracy Now! discussed the rising support for single-payer. Jim Hightower called out Nancy Pelosi for standing in the way of the movement for single-payer. More on that in a minute. Our activism for today is to keep the pressure on Congress until they kill Trump care once and for all. And finally, we just heard primary concerns speaking with the former Democratic governor of Kentucky, giving his thoughts on Trump care and the Republicans who support it. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. No voicemails today, but I just have a few thoughts on a topic that has come to my attention. I I spoke recently about how Clinton and Sanders supporters don't understand each other, and today I want to go a little bit deeper and with more focus and just talk about a couple of subsets of Sanders supporters. We're getting into the weeds. So to back up, 
I am sure everyone remembers the so-called Bernie Bros as the sort of the epithet hurled from the Clinton camp at the Sanders camp in a not-so-subtle accusation of sexism against Clinton. At the time, and actually as far as I know, still to this day, Sanders supporters like, for instance, Jank on the Young Turks, uh, would dismiss the accusation of sexism as ridiculous on its face because Sanders supporters were thought of as more progressive than Clinton supporters and therefore, by default, even less sexist. Logically airtight. Just can't argue with that. Um, meanwhile, though, I was in direct communication with a few hardcore Sanders supporters whose social media profiles were covered in support for Sanders and who made constant racist and sexist remarks while arguing in support of Sanders and against all of his opponents. Hashtag feel the burn. Now, yes, side note, they could have just been provocateurs, paid or otherwise, but I really don't think that there is much reason uh, to think that because the much simpler explanation is that progressive movements through history have always had elements of sexism and racism, so there's no reason to believe that Sanders' campaign would have been able to completely avoid that repulsive element from joining his movement. And believe me, they were repulsive. So on one hand, I say it's absurd to dismiss Bernie Bros as non-existent because to support radically progressive policies makes you de facto anti-racist and anti-sexist, but it is also absurd to suggest that anyone who doesn't support women in power, such as Hillary Clinton or Nancy Pelosi, must therefore base their position on a foundation of sexism, racism, ageism, or anything similar. I and many other people are in the camp of those who thought that Clinton being a woman was actually one of the best things about her, um, but didn't support her for other reasons. And the same goes for Nancy Pelosi. I was around and felt the pride at the time when she became the first female Speaker of the House, and I know her history, I know her record, and I know how she went on to be one of the most effective speakers of all time, so I have no doubt about her skill, ability, or dedication to many of the progressive issues that I personally care about. And yet, I still find myself feeling that it may be time for new leadership. And this is not a contradiction in terms, and it's actually simple to understand if you understand the divide at the heart of the Sanders-Clinton debate that I explained in the previous episode. Which brings us to the debate that's going on right now that just came to my attention. Many are calling for Pelosi to be replaced. Some, no doubt, harbor sexist and ageist feelings that are either fully driving or at least influencing their opposition to Pelosi, while others, and I hope I am in this latter group, don't think that age and gender are really relevant and have problems with her for purely strategic reasons. And with Pelosi, I even say strategic rather than policy reasons because in the case of healthcare, I believe her when she says that she's been supporting single-payer for decades personally. Her policy isn't necessarily the problem. It's that I don't think she sees how much times and people have changed and how ripe this particular moment is to call for a national single-payer system, and she's standing in the way of it. Now, unfortunately, many coming to Pelosi's defense are defending against 
only the accusations that are clearly sexist or ageist, but are completely missing the legitimate concerns over the direction of the party. When defending her, some have pointed to her excellent fundraising abilities and her, her power to handpick rising stars like Rahm Emanuel as reasons why she deserves to stay in power. Whereas I hear those things and think, oh god, she handpicked Rahm Emanuel? Get her out of there before she strikes again. And, you know, and that being the best fundraiser might not make you the best candidate to dismantle the money and politics game as it currently stands that clearly needs to be dismantled. And then you get to the point about single payer, a policy that she says she supports but won't support right now because the American people aren't ready for it, all evidence to the contrary. And, of course, we have no way of knowing how much, if any, the health industry donations she's received have influenced her position or if she's just been cut off from opposing views who might suggest that now actually is the time for single-payer. Maybe she's just not hearing that opinion. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that she's corrupt, as I explained in the last episode. I'm saying that the fact that we can't know for sure if the money influences her means that the whole system is corrupt. So yes, I have no doubt that many sexist and ageist things are being said in the mix of calls for Pelosi to be replaced, just as they were said against Clinton, and I am as repulsed as anyone at those things, and I don't even like being on the same side of an issue as people who would make those kinds of statements, but it's important for everyone to understand that not everyone in a group can be painted with the same brush, nor can a movement be dismissed because of a few of its worst elements. Also remember that the worst people of any group are almost always going to be the loudest, and so they end up seeming more dominant than they really are. That goes for Republicans, too. So sure, go ahead and defend against sexism and racism and ageism and all of those things. I will be right there with you. But don't get tricked into thinking that no one has arguments of substance just because you have to look past those loudest people in order to find them. Keep the comments coming in. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details, on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Stories and forget who it is with